in this marvelous story of Nehemiah. Um, we're calling this series Rebuild. And Nehemiah was um, an important government official. Let's go to Sean next time. He was an important um, government official in uh, the Media Persian Empire. And I'll get into more detail in a minute, give you a little bit of background stuff to catch you up in case you weren't here last Sunday. But here's what I want you to remember from today. It's the big point. Don't worry. I'm going to review this at the end. Write it down. It's a little long for a tattoo, but I want you to remember this, okay? If you have enough space, maybe you can share a tattoo. When God calls you to do something for Him, He will supply everything you need to do that thing. When God calls you to do something, something, He will supply everything you need to do that thing. Keep that, tuck that away in the back of your memory as uh, we go on with the story. Okay. Here's Nehemiah, praying to God. Remember last chapter, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, right? Like his, his head of security. Ancient kings back in those days um, tended to get bumped off by the opposition uh, with different assassination plots and so on. So Nehemiah was basically head of the king's secret service. And he would screen all the food and wine before the king literally ate it. Some of us would think, not a bad job. It's definitely got some perks. Uh, the downside is that uh, your work might kill you. But on the other hand, you eat very well. So he had a very responsible position. The king trusted Nehemiah with his life, absolutely and literally every day. Nehemiah gets some bad, some bad news, though. In the far western part of the Media Persian Empire, the home of his ancestors, Jerusalem, was just in ruins. Several decades earlier, uh, the, the Persians had conquered, the Babylonians, sorry, had conquered um, Jerusalem, desolated it, and brought most of the people as captives to Babylon. Empires changed, now the Persian, media Persians are in, in charge. And there's a new king in town. But Jerusalem is still a mess. Some Jews had gone back earlier and they rebuilt the temple and they started worshiping again. They started working on the wall of the city but got discouraged and the king shut that down really quickly. And so they're just left there. And the problem with the walled city is that you've got no security. How many of you have a security system in your home? How many of you have a lock in your door? Okay, good. Whether you use it or not, you've got the potential to, to lock it. Basically, uh, now they're going to have several conversations. Did I lock the door? Oh, do I have my key? We'll, we'll figure that out after. But you can imagine the lack of security that these folks would feel in a city with no walls, basically open to predators all the time. We've had a few things disappear out of our garage uh, over the years, and um, I, both times I think I, I left the door unlocked and, whoosh, you know, uh, it's not the way I wanted to do spring cleaning, but that's, you know, things happen. Unfortunately, they don't take the junk, they take the good stuff. So there's a, a real sense of insecurity 
and uh, just defeatism in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is so distraught, he prays and fasts on and off for about four months when he gets this news. So here's, uh, again, this picture shows where Nehemiah is based. He's based in the capital of Susa and the king's citadel in the palace. And Jerusalem's about 800 miles away. So let's get into the story. Early the following spring, he's gotten the bad news in late fall, November, December. And early the following spring, about four months later, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. This is what he was supposed to do. Nehemiah was testing it, and it was good to go, and he was serving the king as one. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Let me give you a backstory to this. In the king's presence, you were not allowed to be unhappy. Why? Because you're in the presence of the marvelous king. And you better put on a happy face and be positive, or else you literally might lose your head, not just your job. Because you could be replaced. Even important people like the cupbearer could be replaced. And it's likely that Nehemiah had, had seen this happen before his eyes. Someone displeases the king. Okay, next peasant, please. And uh, the, the constant tension in that court, you knew who the top dog was in that empire. You knew that. The man sitting on the throne. However, we know that Nehemiah answered to a bigger king than that, but that's another story. Anyway, the king is saying, why the long face? You know, what's going on with you? Okay. God gives Nehemiah courage and wisdom just at that moment. Now keep in mind that Nehemiah has been praying and going to God for the last four months, weighing all this on his mind, saying, Lord, I'm so burdened for, for the city of Jerusalem and so burdened for your reputation. What are we going to, what are we going to do about this? Often when we go to God with a problem, we say, Lord, what are you going to do about this? And do you know more often than not, if we keep praying about it, do you know what he says back to us? Well, what are you going to do about it? Ooh, just prayer changes things. Mostly it changes us. But just a warning. I know you want to seek God, but when you pray, pray. Just a warning label on prayer. Be prepared to be changed. Hopefully that's not something. But it's just, just a warning, okay? It may happen. And that would be great. It certainly changed Nehemiah. He had so much courage. Now keep in mind. He's serving the king, likely at a private dinner, because we'll see in, the, in a little while, the queen was sitting with him, and she didn't sit beside the king in state functions. So likely this was a more intimate dinner setting with just kind of the host, immediate household around him. Nehemiah's serving the king. He looks really sad. He looks wrecked, ruined, noticeably distraught. And the king notices this. I mean, he's not stupid. Part of the reason he's king. Um, he notices this. He picks up this detail and saying, what's going on? So that's why Nehemiah is terrified. He's thinking, oh my goodness. Lord have mercy. You know, this is it. Then I'm just terrified. But 
This is how he replies. This is wise. Long live the king! <laughs> By the way, you rock, you know. God save our gracious king. Okay, that's what he's saying. And then he goes on and tries to appeal to the king's better side. Even if the king didn't have a better side, Nehemiah was desperately praying that he would have one in this moment. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Oh, man, this is such a problem. That all, my, my past, my ancestors, my people are in a terrible bind. They're just in an awful mess. That's what's bothering me so much. Okay? And here's Nehemiah serving the king with a queen beside him. I, I wonder if she was kind of a moderating influence on him. I'm not sure. It's, I just think it's kind of significant that the author of the story includes this little detail that the queen was sitting beside this tyrant. Okay, next slide. The king asked, now this is a miracle, okay? God gives Nehemiah courage and wisdom, and then he grants him another thing. He grants him favor with the king. The king asks, well, how can I help you? Think about that for a minute. If you had an absolute monarch ask you, so, how can I help you? It's like, it's kind of like Aladdin's land. This is a blank check. How can I help you? And, and, and what does Nehemiah say? What's his first response? With a prayer to the God of heaven. He doesn't say, well, king, just give me a minute. I've got to go away and seek the Lord. He flashes up this quick prayer. There's all kinds of prayers in life, right? Nehemiah's been praying and fasting on and out for four months. That's one kind of prayer. This is a, what I call a Lord of mercy prayer or a help prayer. Just like, oh, you know, it, can, it just takes one second, but it's very, very meaningful and very, very powerful. And so Nehemiah pops a quick prayer up like this, oh, and he answers so wisely to the king, wisely and respectfully, if it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant. So he's really playing, again, hoping that there's a better better part of human nature in King Artaxerxes. He says, if I've done a good job, and you know, if you're so kindly disposed, um, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. He's still not naming the exact name of the city because Jerusalem had a bad reputation in that kingdom. And so he was just trying to be a little bit wise and downplay it. Now, the king wasn't stupid. He knew what Nehemiah really wanted, where he really wanted to go. But yet God was changing his heart. Do you remember... Last week we were talking about um, Nehemiah was praying specifically, Lord, change the king's heart. Have you got a difficult boss or spouse or child or person in your life or neighbor? G.K. Chesterton said, the reason Jesus said, uh, pray for our neighbors and pray for our enemies is that often they're the same people. Now, don't get off on a rant about what your neighbor's doing with extra snowdrifts and stuff. But, you know, you can ask God to change someone's heart without manipulating, being manipulative, or, or, or praying what I call soulful prayers. But we can ask God to change people's hearts. So, let me go, King. Okay, this is what I want to do. So, he flashes up this quick prayer, and God grants him a favor with the King. I mean, 
If the king says, how can I help you? Wow, that's amazing. Go on and see, let's go on and see what else uh, Nehemiah said. The king, with the queen sitting beside him, said, how long will you be gone and when will you return? I mean, Nehemiah knows it's in the bag right now. How long is, it, how long is this going to take? Then I told him how long I would be gone. The king agreed to my request. I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have, it goes on. He asked for several things. You can read the passage yourself later on. He asked for official letters of passage through the rest of the empire, so permission. He asked for access to the king's private forest for building materials. He says, dear king, I wanted to drop by Home Depot and use the company credit card to stock up on some things so I can rebuild the city of my ancestors. The king gave him a blank check. And as a bonus offer from the king, Nehemiah didn't ask for this, but as a bonus offer, he was given an official escort of soldiers he was provided with protection on the way there. So when uh, Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, he's got this big load of building supplies. He's got this cavalry escort. It must have caused quite a stir in Jerusalem. Let's continue with the story. So Nehemiah gets to, to Jerusalem. I'm leaving out a little bit of the story, but I would encourage you to read the book of Nehemiah over the next couple of weeks. It's a fascinating read. And uh, so Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem. Three days later, he takes three days out, just kind of rests and recuperates. He doesn't rush into anything foolish. He just kind of catches his breath. It's not exactly you have jet lag from a camel, but he just needed a rest from the journey. Three days later, what does he do? He slips out during the night, taking only a few other people with me. And Nehemiah says, I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. He went out on a moonlight promenade to survey the walls of the city because God had given him strategic planning skills. Next slide. This is an artist's rendering of what Jerusalem would have looked like at the time, except of course there were no walls. But you can see the narrow valleys and, and areas that he had to traverse. In fact, he got to one place and the rubble was so bad um, he couldn't use his donkey anymore. He had to get off and, and they had to crawl around on foot. And the, the rubble actually in the valley blocked one of the passages and they had to go back the other way. So, he had a good first-hand look at the situation, and he knew it was absolutely desperate. It was a mess. Okay. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing. He kept his cards close to his chest. I think Nehemiah would have been a pretty good poker player. For I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. Nehemiah was wise, right? He was a strategic planner. He was coming in to rebuild the city, but first he had to see for himself, with his own eyes, what's involved. He didn't just waltz into town with a big parade, with a big entourage and say, hey guys, I'm here to save the day. He needed to see what he was really getting himself into. And as you can see, it just piles of rubble everywhere. Was, the place was an absolute disaster. And people had been living in this mess for decades. How many of us 
have broken down walls in our lives and we're just surviving. We're just surviving. God has called his people to thrive. That doesn't mean that everything is, life is a bed of roses, but to go forward with passion and ability to, to live life the way it was meant to be lived, not just to exist. So, Nehemiah calls everybody together, and he says to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Now, look at the leadership skills that God has given Nehemiah. God's given Nehemiah courage and wisdom, given him favor with the king, he's given him strategic planning skills, he's given him leadership skills that maybe he didn't even think he had. He calls people together and says, you know very well what trouble What's the next word? Say it again. I got a French congregation. We, we are in. This is, you know very well what trouble we are in. Now why would Nehemiah say that? Why didn't he say, you guys are such a bunch of losers. I can't believe you've been here for decades and look at this mess. This is a disgrace. He goes there and identifies with the people. And this is what good leadership does. It gets in the trenches with people and says, wow, you know very well what trouble we are in. We're in this together. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. He doesn't, pamby-pamby, he doesn't try to put a bow on it. I mean, if you put a bow on a pig, it's still a pig, right? So he wasn't trying to put a bow on a pig. It was a bad situation. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, when we did our journey wall at Elam, I think it's still up in the NPR room, and someone tell Garth, I will take it down before the tape messes up the walls. You can have a look at our journey wall, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the old chapel. And some people say, ooh, should we put that up there? Say, well, it's there. It's our history. It's there. So let's deal with it. And Nehemiah's very realistic. He says, you know very well what trouble we are in. So he says, look, let's get our act together. Let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And what? End this disgrace. The issue here wasn't really a civil engineering project. But it was a disgrace. It destroyed God's reputation in that area. And, and it was just, just a mess. People couldn't enjoy life or live in peace. They could not prosper without the protection of that city wall. And a city without walls at that time was just a disgrace. It was literally, it was a dump. So Nehemiah says, look, you guys, let's get our act together. Let's work together and do something about this. Then I told them how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. That would have blown them away. Because I've come with all this official blessing of the king. The king literally told me, what do you need? How long is it going to take? <clears throat> now, Nehemiah shared that story of God's working to encourage the people and to confirm with them and to affirm with himself that God was in this. We are in this together and God is in this with us. Okay. So, and God granted him another thing, favor with the people. This is quite surprising. When you think these people have been sitting there in piles of rocks for decades, 
We can get so used to the ruts we are in life. The routines become ruts, and the ruts get deeper and deeper and build walls, and we just, we just feel stuck. I don't know if you ever feel stuck in life. But that's how these people felt. Almost like learned helplessness. But I'm surprised at how these people responded. And this is a movement of God. They replied, well, I'll get back to you in a couple of days. I'll think about that. They replied at once, the story says. Yeah, let's rebuild it. So they began the good work. So they got started. Which is pretty amazing. God granted Nehemiah something else. Favor with the people. Now, we shouldn't be surprised at what happens next. God also gave, whenever we try to step out for God and do something and make forward progress, we can expect opposition. We can expect problems. And don't freak out when problems and oppositions pop up because it's almost normal when you try to do something for Jesus. When you're following Jesus, you don't have to look for trouble. Trouble will find you. That's okay. That, that's what Jesus promised, right? In this world, you will have trouble, okay? You'll have opposition. You'll have people who don't agree with you. You'll have people who mock you. You'll, you'll have conflict with family over following Jesus. It's going to be complicated, but I am with you. Don't worry. In this world, you'll have trouble, but don't worry. I have overcome the world, okay? Don't let circumstances drag you down. Now, there were these two or three characters with local ruffians, uh, there were more than ruffians, local leaders who were not happy at all that Nehemiah had come back to, re to rebuild the wall. They mocked and they scoffed. Their names were Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab. When they heard of the plan, they scoffed contemptuously and said, What are you doing? You're rebelling against the king? What do you think? You know, what do you th who do you think you are? If you step out for God and take a risk for Jesus, you're going to encounter people thinking, well, who do you think you are? And you can reply with confidence, not much, but the God of heaven is with me, so that makes me and him a majority, right? God in one person is a majority. And how does Nehemiah reply? He doesn't try to justify it. He doesn't bring out his documents or anything like that. He just says flatly to these guys, the God of heaven he's been referring to all along in the story, will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall. But you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. You have no business here. So basically, lead, follow, or get out of the way, you guys. But uh, get out of my face. I don't have time for this. Don't waste my time. So God grants Nehemiah all these things. Courage, wisdom, favor with the king favor with the people, leadership skills, strategic planning skills, and determination in the face of opposition. And why is that? Why is that? Because God calls you, when God calls you to do something for Him, He will supply everything you need to do that thing. Everything you need. That's what we can learn from this chapter of Nehemiah. And you're thinking, and you're sitting there thinking, man, nice story. Happened maybe 2,500 years ago in a dusty old book. So what? All right. Well, this morning, God's been reminding me of a story 
of Rick Hill back in his high school days. How many people have seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite? Okay. I could have been his twin brother. Well, a similar. We had similar fashion sense. Anyway, I was definitely an underdog in high school, okay? I think that's why I resonate with underdogs. I tend to root for the underdog. I was not one of the cool kids in high school. And I had an agnostic buddy named Peter. I was trying to follow Jesus in high school as best as I could. And I had this agnostic, but bitterly cynical, but funny agnostic friend named Peter Smith who came up to me one day and says, you know, Rick, I think you should be running for head boy. I have a, it's a very old traditional high school. It's over 100 years old. And the president of their student council, they had a head boy and head girl. Okay? So I think you should be running for this position, basically president of the student body. I go, ah, you're crazy. But, you know, the other guys running are jerks. That's what quote Peter. Ah, you, you should run. I'm going, well, oh, whatever. And Peter says, okay, I'm going to nominate you. It's like, all right, sure. And I'll be your campaign manager. It's like, all right, sure, whatever. Well, they only chose three candidates to run for their head boy and three for the girl. So, um, I would make that list of three. And uh, the announcement went, here are the, here are the uh, nominees for head boy. One, two, three. And Rick Hill's name wasn't called. So I thought, oh, well, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Whatever, I went home. The next day, getting off the school bus, I was met by two guys who were not my normal group of friends. They were some of the cool kids at student council said, Rick, we need you to run for head boy because two other guys ahead of you dropped out. You were the fifth choice, but we need somebody to fill the bell. They, they said it a little more politely than that. But basically, I was number five, and all of a sudden I was bumped into slot number three, and we just need you as a placeholder to fill up the ballot. I said, well, okay, sure. And uh, I didn't have any organization. I still had very little. But I had even less organization in my life then. And I didn't have, I had my friend, my cynical friend, Peter, the agnostic, who was my campaign manager. And his cynicism tended to alienate a lot of people. So we had even smaller group of supporters. But some of the people who had dropped out ahead of me came and helped and we made posters and did stuff. And we got a, we kind of pulled the campaign together. And I did a little speech. and. I thought, well, you know, whatever. But you know what? I won. I won. I was shocked. And I knew it was God. It was a very formative thing for me because I knew that God answered prayer when Rick Hill prayed. Because God wanted me in that place. It wasn't anything, anything to do with natural talents or abilities or... Animal magnetism, let me tell you. how was it. And it was none of those things at all. But I knew God had put me there for a particular reason. And what I was reminded of today, God just brought it to mind. When I was in high school, when I was in grade 9 and 10, I was a group of a, a bunch of a group of students. We used to gather together in a little basement room, uh, janitor's closet, to just pray for the school. And we prayed and prayed and prayed. I never thought anything about it. I never made the connection. Nehemiah spent all that time praying, and all of a sudden God grants him favor with the king. He gives him courage and wisdom and planning skills and all these things, and he puts him in that place just for his purpose, just for that time, for that purpose. So I knew once I had won this election, it was definitely God. It was not me. So 
I did my best to be a public servant and really serve the school. Um, I went to a really strict Baptist church, and you weren't allowed to dance at all for any reason. But I went to school dancing, so I worked the door and helped people around and go out to my youth group. I was trying to, at that time, I changed my stance on dancing, but especially in church. But um, there were little girls dancing beside me this morning. I, I, I wouldn't want to shock you, but it felt like joining them. It was just, just so beautiful. Anyway, um, but I would do my best to, to serve people. And the first student council meeting that I was the chair of, I thought, well, I'm going to set the agenda for this. I thought, oh, well, what the heck. I had one buddy on student council, editor of the yearbook, was a Christian, too. And I said, Jim, I'm going to open this meeting in prayer. And he goes, all right, go for it. So I did. I just said, okay, God, help us to serve the school, blah, blah, blah. Maybe not politically correct, but I was just asking for help. You know, I always pray when I'm in trouble, and I'm in trouble all the time, so I just asked for help. Okay? Do you know what was interesting? Nobody really said a peep when the meeting went on. But one of the roughest guys in the school, our stoner, you know, you know the, well, that's an 80s term, but a stoner, druggy, uh, party animal linebacker that I played football with, Fred came up to me afterwards and said, Rick, I really like the way that you opened the meeting in prayer. That was really cool. <laughs> now, this is even funnier. Then he said, don't tell anybody I said that. <laughs> Do you know what that taught me about people? Do you know what that taught me about people? People are seeking God. They just don't want to be seen by other people as, you know, being seen by others. He was too cool for school, right? But he really admired that. So I learned so much from taking that, just that little risk. And around about February, God started talking to me about the closing assembly at school. This is when, you know, the head boy and the head girl would say goodbye, thanks, and all the cheesy meetings and stuff. And then we all, school's out for summer, you know, whoever sings that, then we bolt out the door and we're gone. But God started talking to me about that. He says, I want you to tell people about Jesus, do something at this assembly. I'm like, really? So to the best of my ability, when the closing assembly came, I just said, you know what? God loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you, and here's how you can do it. And I just let it out there. I thought, well, I'm leaving school. And actually, in a couple of weeks, I was in a couple of days, I was literally going to Haiti. So I thought, well, I'm out of town. I'm out of here. But it was really interesting, again, the reaction I got from that. And one of the most supportive people was my occasionally coarse and earthy football coach. When he taught sex ed in our health class, everyone paid attention, but maybe not for the best reasons. But anyway, but he came up to me and shook my hand and said, right on, good job. It's like, really? But I say all this not to glorify Rick Hill, but just to say God can use anybody who's available, right? And when God calls you to do something for him, he will supply everything you need to do that thing. I learned a lot from that when I was 18. I don't always apply those lessons. And I need to apply those lessons today. And we need to apply these lessons today. When God calls you to do something for Him, He will supply everything you need to do that thing. 
These are seeds I'm just throwing up there. God's throwing them up there, and we'll see what happens. And for all the people who are listening to this online, God's sowing seeds in your heart too. That I don't know, I'm praying that they're seeds of faith, that they're going to take root, and you will do something. You will step up wisely in faith, because God's telling you to do something. Just remember that He will supply everything you need to do that thing. Right? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for what you uh, taught an unlikely high school kid a long time ago. And I pray that you'll help us to apply this. We don't want Nehemiah just to be a neat story or a cool story. We need courage and wisdom and favor with the authorities and favor with people we're trying to influence. We need determination in the, in the face of opposition. We need planning skills and strategic skills, all these things. We don't have these resources alone. We are so pleased to say how desperate we are, because that makes you even bigger. So you get all the credit when things go well. That's fine with me. I think it's awesome. So we just commit ourselves to you. We are so glad that our Redeemer lives. We serve a God who is alive, who wants to energize his people and call them to do amazing things. We know that you have the future of Elam Chapel in your hand, and you can provide us with whatever we need to do what you are calling us to do. We pray this confidently in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.